Uh, if you have a Bible, can we turn to Hebrews and chapter 4 uh, that we read together? Hebrews and chapter 4. And we're looking this evening at the well-known verses 12 and 13 uh, of this chapter. The Word of God is living and active. And we're thinking this evening of taking God's Word seriously. Do you remember a time in your life, a specific moment when you said with emotion, I should have listened? You were given good advice but you didn't take it. You thought that you knew better. Perhaps it was advice from your elder. He spoke to you about some of the places you were going or some of the company you were keeping or some of the things you were doing or not doing and you didn't listen. But the chickens came home to roost and you've looked over the mess that your life has ended up in and you wish that you had listened. Or perhaps it was the advice of your parents and your education or your career path or your piano playing or your chosen sport or your sheer laziness. And now, having reaped what you sowed, you wished that you had listened. Their words seemed to be out of touch with current trends and behavior. Their advice seemed to promote a boring pathway Or you consider them to be killjoys because of the constant warnings that they gave to you. But now you wish you had listened to them. Taking God's word seriously is the message of verses 12 and 13. This is our last sermon on the book of Hebrews for this time. And it is a suitable place for us to break off from our studies in Hebrews For the opening sermon or part of the letter is finished at verse 13. Commentators consider the next section to begin at verse 14 and to continue to chapter 10 and verse 18. And we recognize that much of the opening section has been devoted to showing the supremacy of Jesus to the key elements of Judaism. He is greater than the revered prophets of the Old Testament than the mighty angels so active in Old Testament times to the outstanding leader Moses and his successor who brought them into the promised land, Joshua. At times the writer has broken off in his theme to make application of listening to this supreme revelation of God in Jesus. We might ask, why listen to Dominic Rabb, to Jeremy Hunt, to cleverly, Braverman, Wallace, Dowden, Gove, Mordant, Lord True, Shapps, Coffey, Badenoch, Stride, Keegan, Harper, Donnellan, Zawe, Heaton, Harris, Jack, or Davies, when we can listen to the Prime Minister? Why listen to the lesser when we can listen to the more powerful? And so the writer has argued. If Jesus is supreme to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to Joshua, then we must listen to him. The angels gave the law at Mount Sinai and Jesus is greater than the angels. Then we must listen to his message. 
This was the application that God gave on the Mount of Transfiguration to the disciples, wasn't it? Moses and Elijah appeared there and conversed with Jesus, but a cloud overshadowed them and God spoke. Jesus is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And this is the message of the the opening words and chapters of Hebrews. Jesus is supreme and that's not just an idea that's to tantalize us and a box to tick that we understand this. But there is this practical application that he keeps coming back to and comes back to at this the very end of his section. Listen to what he says. And so we're thinking of taking God's word seriously. He's appealed to buttress his argument to the the sad events in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. In the fourth chapter, as we've been seeing, he's traced that they didn't enter the promised rest in the land of Canaan because of their unbelief and disobedience to God's word. They were on the very edge of the promised land. They could see it, but they did not enter it. They did not listen to the word of God with faith and submission and reverence and obedience. Instead, they turned their backs on God's promise and God's way and died in the wilderness. God's word was fulfilled in them, not the promise of blessing that he had given to them, but the threat of judgment that he had said would be accomplished. And so, from that example, that example of not listening to God's word, the writer closes this section on the supremacy of Jesus to everything that's within Judaism, to their leaders, to their angels, to their prophets, by appealing to us to listen to the word of God supremely spoken by Jesus. And we feel this challenge from these verses keenly because I'm sure many of us memorize these verses in Sabbath school. The verses are are well known and this adds to the challenge of them for us. We know these verses, but living them out Doing them, as we'll think of this evening, is the challenging dimension for us. And so we're we're thinking of three reasons why we should take God's word seriously, which the writer sets out for us here. Firstly, because God's word is effective. The first reason that we should give careful heed and attention to God's word is because it is effective. Verse 12, the word of God is living and active. Now the early church fathers, most of them anyway, understood, and, it's good, and it's a trend within theology to go back to them, to their writings, to, to delve into to their opinions, living close to the apostles. More and more interest has been given to the church fathers. But in this case, they understood the term, the word of God, here to mean the personal word, that is, Jesus. The word of God is living and active. Now, it is true that Jesus is called the word. In John 1, 1, as you know, in the beginning was the word. But in this context, 
The writer is citing and explaining Psalm 95 today if you will hear his voice. And thus the word of God here is God's voice, God speaking, which for us today is the Bible. And so it's the Bible he's describing as being living and active. In our Bible class, we've been considering how the apostles thought of the Old Testament. And one of the points that we've been considering is that the Old Testament scriptures are considered by them as the very words of God. They acknowledge the role of human writers like Isaiah and David, but they ascribe ultimate authorship of the Old Testament to God. And this is very evident in this fourth chapter. In verse 3, when the writer is quoting the Old Testament, we read, He says, that is, God says. Again in verse 5, we read, He said, that is, God said. In verse 7, we read, saying through David, that is, God speaking through David. They acknowledge the human writer, but the ultimate author is God. And this is our doctrine of inspiration, this miracle of God speaking through the human writer, but in such a way that the writing is called as here, the word of God. The weakness, the sin, the error that is residing in the writer is prevented from marring the writing by the miracle of divine inspiration. So the word of God, the Bible, that which was written down by human authors, supervised, guided, steered, prevented from error by the Holy Spirit, is living and active. The specific context is the promise of rest in Canaan to the people through Abraham and Joseph and Moses. If they believed this, if they obeyed God and entered the promised land, then the promise of blessing would be theirs. And that case study, that case study of them not believing, of them not obeying the word of God, and then of them subsequently wandering in the wilderness, that case study leads this writer to verse 12. The word of God is living and active. What God says is not forgotten. What God says is not inane. But God's word is living and active. Look at the case of Israel who were on the edge of the promised land, promised blessing and strength to enter the land, promised judgment and chastening if they were unbelieving. God's word was fulfilled in their experience. They were unbelieving and disobedient and they endured God's chastening hand on them. And so he moves on into verse 12 with this case study before us. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is living because God is living the promises and threats of any person end when they die. At death, the bully is incapable of fulfilling his threats. The victim is relieved at the death of the bully. And even if the person who is threatening is imprisoned, 
while he lives. His threat lives. The threatened fears. His release. And will be notified of it. You remember Joseph. Who went down into Egypt with Mary. Because of the threats of King Herod. Guided of course by God. And then he returned into the land of Israel. When Herod had died. With the death of Herod. Was the death of his threat. But God's word is living. Because God is living. And his promises. And his threats. Are real and true. And so we are to give. Attention to God's word. Because. His word. Is effective. So also when someone has promised us something. And maybe they've never got round to doing it. And they die. And we're so disappointed. Because their promise dies with them. So God's word is living. Because God is living. His promises and threats are alive. They're current. They're in date. And the word of God is active because God is all-powerful. Many people who make threats or promises are too weak to carry them out, even though they're, they're living. They don't have the skills or the authority or the physical strength. Our government has promised to to sort out the immigration problem, to control the number of immigrants coming into our country They're still in power, but they do not have the ability to do this. But here is God, and he is living, and he is active, he is powerful, he is able to do what he has promised. He's not weak, but able to deliver on his threats and on his promises. And so the word of God is living and active. It is valid and being fulfilled just as the destruction of the people in the wilderness proves. A common expression in the Old Testament is, it came to pass just as the Lord had said. At the end of the Old Testament, these aspects of God's word are emphasized in the, the example we read in Zechariah 1, 6 and 7. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The word of God is living and active. Now I'm setting myself up here for uh, some hassle over the holidays when I make this application that the word of parents should be living and active. That what we promise and what we threaten should be fulfilled. No doubt over the holidays I will hear the words, but you said, you said, when are you taking us here, there? You said, we represent our Heavenly Father. And how we keep our word will reflect on our Father in Heaven, 
will give our children an insight into the faithfulness of God to his word. His word is living and active. He, he delivers on his promises. He brings his, his warnings to pass. And this is a, a reason why we're to, to give close attention to his word because his word is, is something that's, that's alive and active and powerful in our hearts and lives and families. And all Christians' word should be living and active. Jesus taught us not to, to use oaths and, and extra language when we're, we're giving answers, when we're making promises. Just we need to say yes and no. We, we, we don't need to, to add things on to, to those answers because our word should be living and active. And for all of us, this description of, of the scriptures is, is a fundamental one, isn't it? It lay at the, the heart of the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Here was Satan and he came and he attacked this dimension of God's word. He said to Eve, you shall not die. He was attacking this assertion of God's word that it's living and active, that God will always deliver on his promises and on his warnings. But Satan denies that and at the heart of every single sin that we commit is a question mark over this dimension of God's word that it's living and active. And somehow our head and our conscience wrestles with this and says, oh, this will not happen to me. He, he will not see this. There'll be no consequences from this. Or, or we doubt his faithfulness and, and, and his promises. But his word is living and active. The promises of the first psalm that everything that he or she does will prosper. What a promise. The promise that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's a living and an active word. The promise if we take communion in an unworthy manner will be chastened. And critical in our thinking about this is not to judge things by the appearances. Not to think that disobedience will always be punished by death, by bankruptcy, by illness. Or that blessing will always be evidenced in health and wealth and prosperity. The Bible assures us that sowing and reaping, it takes time. And so sin and chastening takes time and obedience and blessing takes time. But God's word, we can be assured, is living and active. And so we give attention to God's word. We, we pay attention to his word. We heed his word because his word is effective. Secondly, we pay attention to God's word. We take heed to his word. We take it seriously because it is incisive in verse 12b. 
Now, a metaphor is used here, the two-edged sword. It was one of the sharpest implements in the first century. We use the expression a double-edged sword when referring to good and bad consequences from an action. However, the meaning here seems to be a little different. Church fathers Augustine and Tertullian interpreted the two-edged sword as the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we recognize their wisdom, but we think the meaning is probably simpler here. Others consider the dual nature of God's word in condemning and in comforting us to be represented here, this two-edged sword. But the main aspect of this metaphor, and that's the thing we're always to try and get a hold of, is that it's got no blunt edges. It's a double-edged sword. It is sharp on every side. To facilitate maximum attack and injury on the foe. To slice through the air and flesh and bone and vital organs. Because it is a sharp two-edged sword. And This is the the, the idea that we are to understand that God's word. It's incisive. It can penetrate. It reaches down as the the, the words follow. uh, Indicate to the the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, to places where other people cannot go, to the deep recesses of our soul and being, the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. It's hard sometimes to read one another, to know what the other person is thinking, but God's word, it reaches down into those places where there is guilt, where there is anger, where there is fear, where there is doubt, where there is anxiety, down into our mind, to our brains, to our intentions, to our thoughts, to give warning and advice and wisdom and comfort and challenge into our spirit and into our soul. This is why we're to take God's word seriously because of its incisiveness, that it reaches down with warnings for us, it reaches down with comforts for us into the very depths of our being. The joints and marrow uh, reference again uh, is hard to, to understand. Perhaps it's addressing our bodies as well as our souls. That this, this holistic uh, dimension to, to God's word covering the, the whole person. Uh, the soul and spirit thing doesn't mean that we have three parts to, to our being, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, we probably are people who are bipart in our, our theology, that we have a body and, and a soul. But, but there's dimensions to our soul, perhaps the God word represented by spirit and the soul connected to, to society. But, but this is the point here. That, that, that these fine things like marrow and bone, which are connected and, and intertwined, and soul and spirit, uh, which are joined together and, and so hard to distinguish between. Yet such is the incisiveness of God's word. Such is the, the depths of its penetration as, as symbolized in the body, bone and marrow, as symbolized within the, the hidden parts of us, soul and spirit. It reaches the very depths of our hearts and lives, the worries, the troubles, the concerns, the plans, the schemes, the thoughts. Here's the word of God. It's living. 
It's active and it reaches down into the very basement of our lives. It pierces us like a sharp two-edged sword sometimes in a really good way. You remember Jacob uh, leaving home, heading off to his uncle Laban. Uh, he'd got into all kinds of bother. He, he was worried and concerned about this trip as he lay down to sleep and God came to him and promised him, I will be with you. This, this young man, he was afraid. He was alone. He didn't know what lay be, 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 before him. But God's word came and reached down into the very base of his being and said to him, I will be with you. The day of Pentecost, Peter preaching to, to, the, to the Jews who, who had been involved in, in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ and were struck with such guilt in their hearts and cried out, what will we do? And Peter took this sword of God's word and, and provided the offer of forgiveness to them. At the very heart of their being was this overwhelming guilt that was crushing them. And the sword came down into their life with forgiveness and healing and grace. In Charles Spurgeon's uh, biography, there's a, there's a wonderful uh, event in his life that happened to him as a, a young man. It's a, a well-known uh, story, but it's something that left its mark on his life. Uh, and it, it left him with this, this kind of weakness in his soul, in his mind. It was a tragic event in the music hall in Surrey, this large building where thousands came to hear him preach. It was an evangelistic outreach event. But during the service, there was this rush for the door and seven people were killed in this rush for the door and the service had to be stopped by this and and this really got to to Spurgeon and the papers got on his back this this young man about 20 years of age and and tore strips off him and and questioned his his wisdom and his ways and it brought him down into this incredibly low dark and black place and for days he wandered around in this days and in this state of depression until a verse from the Bible brought him out of it. And the verse was, God has highly exalted Jesus in Philippians 2 verse 12. And it just met him at the point of his weakness and total despair. That though he was weak, Jesus was mighty. Here is the word of God, like a sharp two-edged sword, not always to, to hurt us, but able to penetrate sometimes with, with the deepest comfort to address the greatest need hidden from others in our spirit. And this is why we are to take heed to God's word. But often, perhaps, uh, because of our fallenness and sinfulness, that word is a word of warning, a word of rebuke th that God's word uh, brings to us. The Ten Commands are put in the, the, the negative form. There was a, a Bible that was published uh, mistakenly called the Wicked Bible because it had left out the knots in the Ten Commandments. But they are there. 
you shall not covet. And they are there because of our fallenness. And God's word as a sharp two-edged sword often comes and strikes our conscience. And the, 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 the thoughts and hidden schemes and waywardness of our minds and hearts is rebuked and challenged by the living and active word of God. Perhaps it was working in Judas as he brought the money back to the temple. It certainly reached down into David's laziness, coldness, coolness when Nathan came saying, you are the man. And that word of God reached into the very depths of his being, something which other circumstances and conversations never reached. Paul describes his own condition in Romans 7 and he says that he would not have known sin except God's law said you shall not covet. It was that slice of scripture which was like a a two-edged sword that penetrated his self-righteousness and addressed the guilt that lay on his soul. And it can be humbling and it is humbling and it should be humbling to accept the stinging rebuke of the word of God. Painful to have the finger of God pointed at us for this piercing sword to reach into our being. But one writer puts it well when he says, the Bible is God's voice. Then my opinion of the Bible is secondary to the Bible's opinion of me. What matters ultimately is not how I judge the Bible, but how the Bible judges me. And so we take heed to God's word. We pay closer attention to it. We bow our wills to it. We humble ourselves before it. We listen to it. We believe it. We obey it because it is effective. It's working for good or bad in our life. And it is incisive. It reaches down into the dark rooms of our being. And lastly, it's authoritative in verse number 13. And and once again, the connection between verse 12 and 13 is not easy to determine, as I'm sure you can see, because the writer moves from speaking about the book, the word of God, to the author in, in verse number 13. And how this shift is made and And the connection we're to see in it is not easy to discern. A common interpretation is that the two are collapsed into one. That the author and the book are one. That what the book says, the author says. But perhaps it's better for us to to see that there is this shift from the the writer, from from the book, uh, to the author himself. The one who has given us his word. And this is, this is the writer's progressive argument. We, we are to, to give heed to God's word. Based on the case study of the Israelites, we are to give heed to God's word because it is active. It's working. The promises and the threats, they're working. You might look at your life, you might look at others' life and see no evidence of it, but it's a living, it's an active word. It's going on there, blessing or judging in our lives, in the lives of others. 
It's incisive. We don't know what's going on in people's minds, how people's conscience is working. But God's word, guided, blessed by the Spirit, operates beyond the physical to the, the, the soul and the spirit. And then the writer moves us on to this third level. Why we should take heed to God's word is because of who the author is. And this is where he leaves this, this first section. Who has given us this book? Verse 13. The God who sees everything. The God who will judge all of us. That's why we need to take heed to God's word. He uses a, a, a metaphor here. It's perhaps not that clear uh, in, the, in the text, but, but, but it is there. Uh, uh, naked and exposed uh, to the eyes. The metaphor is of the Old Testament sacrifice and the offerer coming along with his lamb uh, to the temple, the tabernacle, and the priest would receive this lamb. And uh, we're not used to all this uh, kind, kind of stuff and, and going on. A few of us probably keep turkeys. We, we just prefer to go down to <coughs> Tesco, of course, and uh, get, get our turkey uh, because it's just it's sitting there in a bag. You only have to stick it in the oven. But in the tabernacle there were the priests who were, were butchers. They, they had to do this to, to sacrifice the lamb. And so here the lamb would come and the priest would grab the head of the lamb and, and hold the head back. And the neck of the lamb was, in, in, in the words here, naked and exposed. And the priest would see that it's a lamb without blemish. A lamb of the right age, the right quality, a lamb suitable for sacrifice to Almighty God. The eye of the priest, the expert eye, would survey the naked and exposed neck, throat of the animal. And that's the image that, that we're to have of ourselves before Almighty God, that he sees us, that he looks down upon us, that he knows all about us. And it is him who speaks to us with his living and active word. There is no secret sin. There is no unbelief that he doesn't notice. There is no disobedience that he does not know. He is not ignorant of our case. And we need to heed his word because he knows us. He knows he knows the, the fears we have. He, he knows the worries that we possess. He knows the disappointments we go through. He knows all of this. And his incisive word, that word like a two-edged sword, which speaks in judgment at times, but also speaks like with Jacob in, in an amazing way of grace, will come to us as we heed his word, as we hear his word. He knows all. He sees all. He never misunderstands any person, any circumstance, any heart. Counselors can err. Psychiatrists can misunderstand an individual. But here is God who sees all and knows all. And it is him who speaks in his word. The Cunard liner, the Queen Mary, 
uh, has an incredible interior. You, you may have been on it for, for a, a wee cruise here, and here or there. But in its, in its staterooms, it has rose-tinted mirrors. And the purpose of these rose-tinted mirrors is that when the seas are high and rough and people are not feeling themselves, perhaps gone a little pale, then as they look in the mirror, they do not look that bad, these rose-tinted mirrors. But as we read God's word, as we hear God's word, as we sit under God's word, we are to allow God's word to, to speak to us with, with meaning and with clarity. We are to understand ourselves as God's word shows ourselves to be. So we're to take heed, take God's word seriously because it is effective. It's working in our life, living and active. Because it is incisive. It does rebuke us, but it also comforts us at the very depths of our being. It brings those fears and those sense of guilt into the light of his word. And it is authoritative. He knows us. There's nothing hidden from him. He diagnoses us precisely and exactly and speaks into that circumstance. One of the brilliant things about this short paragraph is that it's not the end of the book. He goes on now as we feel unworthy, as we feel terrified, as we feel afraid, as we feel exposed to, to, to the God who will judge us, the God who sees everything. This is not his final word. He's such a pastor, this writer of Hebrews. And from now on, he'll just talk about grace. He'll talk about Christ. He'll talk about the Redeemer. And for all this sense of guilt and unworthiness that we feel before the mighty, authoritative word of God, he will have an answer. There is forgiveness. There is life there is a sacrifice by the Son of God that covers all of our sins. And he starts it in the very next paragraph. In verse 16 he says, Let us come with confidence. Us who are condemned by God's word. Us who feel exposed to the all-seeing eye of God. Even us can come with confidence to the throne of grace. And we will receive mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. So let us take God's word seriously. Yes, a word that challenges us and humbles us. But also speaks powerfully and in detail about his grace.